Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. This is Bola Shokumbi. I'm the founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. The Clever Girls Know podcast is a podcast for women, offering a space for conversations around personal finance, business, life, and living. I'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, and you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes. And if you love what you listen to, head on over to iTunes and leave a review so that other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. I'd also love for you to stop by clevergirlfinance.com. We have new content on the blog multiple times a week. We have over 30 plus free courses. Plus, when you sign up for a course, you can talk to a Clever Girl Finance mentor for free to get encouragement, motivation, or if you just want to have an open, no shame, no judgment girl talk. Finally, check out our YouTube channel. Just search Clever Girl Finance on YouTube. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Clever Girl Finance. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Hi, Emily. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Well, welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. I am excited to have you here to talk about a step-by-step guide to stacking your Benjamins. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So before we dive into this conversation, please tell us about yourself and what you do. Sure. My name is Emily Guy Birkin. I am a freelance writer in the personal finance space. I am also the author of five books on personal finance, retirement, social security, and other topics. My most recent book is Stacked, Your Super Serious Guide to Modern Money Management, which I co-wrote with my friend, Joe Saul Cihai of the Stacking Benjamins podcast. Yes. And that's the book we're going to be focusing on today. Well, questions about the book. And Joe is awesome. He's a friend of Clever World Finance. I've been on his podcast. You know, I love talking to Joe all the time. So in the book Stacked, which you just mentioned, you wrote this with Joe Salse, and you talk about traditional financial management being too serious. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. First of all, how did you and Joe connect on this book, this particular Mm -hmm. topic? And then how would you describe how your approach that you take in the book is different from the too serious approach to financial management? Sure. So Joe and I have known each other. We actually can't quite pinpoint how long we've known each other. It's been getting on close to 10 years now. And we were, you know, how sometimes you meet someone and you're immediately like, that's my new friend. That's how it was (laughs) for, for both of us. And so a few years ago, he approached me and asked if I would be interested in writing a book with him. He had been wanting to write a book for quite some time. He'd spent about 10 years on a manuscript that he realized was not what he wanted. It was very serious. And that's just not who Joe is. He's not a serious guy. (laughs) (laughs) And he realized also that it took him 10 years to create a manuscript he wasn't happy with. Why not partner with someone who has already kind of shown experience in book writing? And I'd already written four books at the time. And so I said, absolutely, sure. His pitch to me was that he wanted to take the Hardy Boys Detective Manual, which was something (laughs) that he read as a child. I remember reading those too. And then so classic Joe. It is. And cross (laughs) it with the Cub Scout Wolf Guide. Oh God. (laughs) But make it about finance and for (laughs) grown-ups. And funny. What did I say? And he likes to say that he was expecting me to be like, you're going through a tunnel and like close the laptop on our Zoom call. (laughs) 
But I was actually really excited and interested in the project for a couple of reasons. One, when you are writing in the financial sphere, there's this sense that since money is so important, you have to take an important tone with it which has been a minor frustration for me for, you know, I've been writing in the personal finance sphere for 12 years. I will put in, you know, very gentle humor, you know, a little bit of jokes in what I write and it often gets edited out. And there's a good reason for that. We have this connection in our mind. Like if something's important, you need to talk about it in an important manner. But I actually think that money is too serious to be taken seriously. I, I <laughs> to be taken seriously. With apologies to Vicki Lawrence, who I borrowed that from. I remember hearing her say, life's too serious to be taken seriously. And I feel like humor is one of the best ways to get into really important topics because it helps you like lower your guard and helps you feel more welcome in a process that can feel unwelcoming. Mm -hmm. So I was really excited about the idea of taking a lighthearted approach to finance. And so Joe and I went into this book with the idea that we're going to find a way to make finance fun for the people who don't find it interesting or fun. We want to write a book that is going to be approachable for the type of people who generally don't read books about money. And so that ended up being a lot of fun because Joe and I, we broke the book into, I think there's 14 chapters and we each took seven and we wrote the rough draft of seven chapters and then switched. And it was our goal to try to make the other one laugh, <laughs> which was a lot of fun and made it a lot easier to kind of find the humor because I wasn't trying to find the humor for some general audience. I was trying to find the humor for Joe. And I know Joe and I know what makes him laugh. And so he was doing the same for me. And that was just a lot of fun and gave us a different way of looking at money than the very typical, like spend less than you earn and increase your income. And, you know, all of those things, because a lot of the basic advice in personal finance is never going to change. We have to find new ways of telling it. Yeah, agreed. And I have this book and, you know, it's very funny. And I love how you guys call it your super serious guide <laughs> to modern management. <laughs> so <laughs> that actually the book, yeah, um, that, that stacked, came, came about because one of our editors at Penguin Random House, we knew the title was stacked. And so they were suggesting subtitles. And one of our editors said, your fun guide to modern money management. And Joe and I both agree that if you have to describe yourself as something, then you're not really that thing. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, no, no, we don't want fun in there. And we're like, how about super serious? <laughs> because then you'll know it's not really serious. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And I'm featured in this book, so I'm all about it. So you guys definitely <laughs> have to check out Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. So you just talked about the title of the book. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I wanted you to elaborate more on the concept of stacking Benjamins, right? Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? So, you know, if you're thinking of Benjamins as in $100 bills, we all want stacks of Benjamins in our life. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> you don't want uh, pocket lint in a couple of quarters. You want stacks of Benjamins. <laughs> and so one of the things that Joe has done very well with his podcast and that we're doing with this book is like, first of all, changing the way that you think about it. So when you start saying like building wealth, I want to build wealth. And, you know, if you named your podcast building wealth, that means the same thing as stacking Benjamins, but it's a lot less fun. Yes. So <laughs> it's, 
So if you start with, you know, like, okay, you want to stack Benjamins, it's not only a more fun, like kind of word play, it also gives you a mental image like of what you want. Whereas when you say, I want to build wealth, what does that mean? Like, you know, numbers on a screen, like, what do you mean by building wealth? Whereas when you say stacking Benjamins, like, oh yeah, I can imagine that. You can visualize it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And that is often the first step to helping you to achieve something is when you can visualize it. So money is this amorphous idea that we all share. It's this very weird thing. It's a social construct. It doesn't actually exist in nature, which is one of the reasons why it can be so hard for people to kind of wrap their hands around it and get a handle on it because so much of it is just mental rather than, you know, something that is, you know, occurs in the world. So when you create something called stacking Benjamins, you physicalize the idea of money. You give something that your brain can hook onto. Whereas you just say building wealth, that is so amorphous and so difficult to understand that you're not going to be able to reach the goals that you have because it just doesn't feel real in your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think that's also specific to different types of people. Like some people are more visually motivated. Mm -hmm. If they can visualize it in their head, then it's easier for them to pursue it. And also I do love the play on words that you guys use because it just, for everyone really, it makes it approachable. It makes Mm -hmm. it just seem Mm -hmm. simple and not, you know, it makes it seem uncomplicated, which is so important, especially for someone who's just trying to get a handle on their finances and thinks that money is intimidating. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the things that really drew me to this project was my fourth book prior to this one was called End Financial Stress Now. Mm-hmm. And that book was a labor of love. I had been thinking about the book for nearly 10 years before I wrote it. Wow. And it's about, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's about the fact that we have a tendency to carry financial stress that's unnecessary. And that's not to say that money problems don't exist. And that's not to say that money stress isn't real, but a lot of the stress we carry doesn't actually have to do with the money. It has to do with the way we look at the money. It has to do with our own you know, financial trauma, our own habits, our own viewpoints, the our you know, childhood view of money, all of those things. And a lot of them can be changed by changing your mindset so that you can make better decisions about your money and feel less stress about it just by kind of turning a corner in your mind about how you think about it. Yes. So I wanted to write that book specifically to help people kind of unclench, let's say. (laughs) A friend of mine from college bought the book to support me. She's not someone who would typically read a money book. And then she told me privately, I'm really scared to read this. And I was like, oh my goodness, why? No, why would you be scared to read this? And she said, well, I'm afraid it's going to tell me I'm doing everything wrong. And I realized that even the book that I wrote specifically to be as reassuring and helpful as possible to people who don't read money books, it's still going to be intimidating to someone who is sure that every money book is going to say you're doing it wrong. And so the thing about Stacked was we were coming at it from the point of view of let's make this lighthearted. Let's make this something that's fun to read, even if you would never pick up a money book. And let's be honest about Uh our mistakes. Let's make it clear that you can mess up and recover. And it's not something that you have to carry with you your whole life. 
Yes. And that part of being honest about mistakes, because there's this idea that people who are wealthy, people who have achieved a certain level of success have never made any mistakes. Mm -hmm. They've been so disciplined from beginning to the end. And that's just not Mm -hmm. true. (laughs) And I think that in a way puts people off wanting to pursue success and financial wellness because they're like, oh, that person must have done everything right. They're good at saving. They're good at investing. They don't have any debt. They're this, they're that. And you kind of build this wall up. Yes. And it makes you afraid to read the book because you think the book is about perfection. Yes. And there is no such thing as perfection. None. Um, in, no. <laughs> in any human endeavor and particularly with money. And the other thing that I really want people to understand is that there's no such thing as being good with money because you say like, oh, that person's good with money. Well, what does that mean? You know, because I truly believe everyone is good with some type of money, something mm-hmm. to do with money. Even if you struggle to pay your bills, you might be a master at finding like good deals at the store. You know, even if you are really struggle with putting money aside for retirement, you might be the person who knows how to request money for fundraisers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any type of thing where you say you're good with money, it is such a big, overwhelming network of different things you have to do. No one is good at all of it. Not a single person in this world. Warren Buffett is not good at all of it. Um, And so, and everyone is good at some part of it. And so kind of recognizing what your skills are, feeling good about those skills and recognizing that you can learn other skills to kind of build on top of that is really, I think, affirming for a lot of people who feel intimidated. Yes. Yes, I agree. So let's talk about the actual process of stacking our Benjamins and take us through the first Benjamin mm-hmm. we need to stack. What's the, so we're going to go up the chain. So take, mm-hmm. take us to the very first one. And then in order of, you know, next after that, how should we prioritize stacking our Benjamins? Mm-hmm. So the first Benjamin actually isn't money exactly. The first thing to start with is figuring out what your goals are. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really appreciate about how Joe does this, and this is something he introduced me to that I I didn't. uh, Hi, Joe. He's going (laughs) to listen to this. (laughs) Yes, Joe, I'm I'm, I'm telling good things about you. (laughs) He introduced me to this idea. I was not familiar with it beforehand. He does something called timelining your goals. Mm. And he, he used to be a financial advisor and he would do this with his clients. And what that was, was he would say like, what are the things that you want to have happen in your life? So, you know, might say, okay, well, I want to retire at 55. I want my kids to be able to go to college without graduating with debt. You know, we're, we're talking about buying a vacation home. We're hoping to do that by let's say 2040 and this, that, and the other. So the problem with our brains have trouble like recognizing when things kind of intersect. So by timelining, what Joe would do is he's like, okay, that all sounds great. Let's draw a line and like, we'll put a little stick figure on the left-hand side. That's you now. So (laughs) let's put a line in there for when you're 55. So retirement at 55. Okay. All right. Let's put in your kids going to college. Like, oh, whoa, you'll have two kids in college the year you're 55 all right, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't do all the things you want to do, but this is good to know. You want to have the vacation home in 2040. So what might be happening then? And so by looking at that, you recognize like there are things that might overlap in time, which may make it difficult for you to have the money that you want. 
And so from then you can start kind of massaging your goals. So is it okay if you push off retirement to age 60 instead of 55? What about 58? How does that affect your goals? Is it okay if instead of you want your kids to graduate without debt, maybe you're aiming for graduate with less than $8,000 in student loans? And then you can kind of like figure out the math of like, if I want to get there by this date, how much money do I think I need for retirement? How much money will I have to have set aside to pay for my kids' college? So how much would I need to put aside each month starting now? And what kind of return might I need to make sure that it has grown to this level by the time I'm ready to retire, by the time my kids are ready to go to college? So this is so much more dynamic than just saying like, here are my goals. I've always been kind of like a gold star type A sort of goal setter. And so I have this habit of like, I'll make these big, hairy, audacious goals. I'll be like, all right, I am going to do this by this date. And then I'd feel like I was done. It would be like, you know, like put this shiny goal up on the mantle. Like, look, I made that goal, (laughs) but I didn't have necessarily a plan to get there. And so by timelining and learning to do this, that actually allows me to create smaller goals, little micro goals to get to where I want to be. So one of my big, hairy, audacious goals is my husband is mechanical engineer. He makes a great living and I very much want to out earn him at some point. And I've said this many times, but I've never like, okay, so that means I need to be bringing in 10 to $12,000 per month. All right. So how much is that per week? So how many articles would I have to write? How much would I need to be earning in royalties? How much would I need to be earning from, I do financial coaching on the side as well from coaching Mm -hmm. to be able to do that so that I can look at it month to month and be like, how am I doing on that goal? No, I just kind of like, I want to do this. And it doesn't happen. <laughs> yep, it never it never happens that way. Yeah. Yes. So that's very much the first Benjamin. And because based on what your goals are and when you want to achieve them, you can start making your smaller monthly and yearly goals. And you have something to aim towards and then also something to adjust on a monthly and yearly basis as time goes on. And so many people don't do that. We tend to be, even if we do set goals, we might do what I do and just be like, oh, that's a goal. Or we're reactive to our money where we don't think about the fact that it's like, oh yeah, my kid is going to be going to college soon. It's, oh my goodness, that's going to be expensive. And like, he's got two years. What do I do now? Or, you know, just, we think about what's coming next down the road instead of kind of looking more globally at our lives. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, and like you said, we all hear about set goals, set goals, but then when you actually timeline it, or what was the word that you used that Joe showed you how? Timelining? Timelining, yeah. So when we actually timeline our goals, we actually get to see how they can take fruition, basically. Mm -hmm. And I love to tell people that it's one thing to set goals and it's another thing to take action. And by doing this Mm -hmm. timeline approach that you just mentioned, it allows you to start to visualize the same way we visualize stacking our Benjamins. Mm -hmm. Having that timeline in place allows you to start to visualize how you can effectively take those steps to accomplish them. Mm -hmm. Because people will say, okay, I want to save a million dollars, but then how are you going to do it? Over what time period? Where is the income going to come from? The same way you talked about wanting to out-earn your husband one day, right? Mm -hmm. You have to sit down and break it down and see it in your mind's eye so that you can make it real for yourself. Mm-hmm. And if necessary, readjust it. It's, this is not about diminishing the goal. So the goal might be really big and lofty, but when you break it down, you can then readjust it and determine mm-hmm. what ways can I get creative 
to like figure out how to make this work, accelerate my timeline, earn more income to achieve the goal, whatever it might be. But I love that idea of timelining that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. It's also one of the other aspects that can be really helpful with this timelining is you can recognize when you're ahead, if you timeline the goal and, you know, People will know, like, you know, if you've had a great year, if your portfolio has done really well, not that we have felt that lately, (laughs) you know that. But if you don't know and have a sense of like, no, I'm ahead, it's harder to capture the excess and make sure it goes towards your goals. And similarly, if something happens like your portfolio is down a little bit, you don't necessarily have the sense of like, okay, well, what am I going to do when things take a little bit of a turn when inflation is high. And so, you know, buying the same things that I usually do at the grocery store costs more. If you haven't kind of timelined your goals and like kind of made yourself these like mini goals of, you know, for the monthly and yearly, you don't necessarily have the space to think about how to respond to those those changes in the economy, changes in the markets, and make sure that you are still prioritizing your goals while dealing with these difficult situations or these exciting situations. So what are the next couple of Benjamins that we should be stacking? Or you could just give us a quick run through list. So goals is the foundational Benjamin. Mm -hmm. That's our bottom of the stack. And then- What else? From there, it's really important to learn how to budget. And budget can be a four-letter word for a lot of people. Don't Uh, say the word. We're child-friendly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so learning how to create a budget that works for you is really important. And that's something that I think people have this sense of like budgeting is one thing. It's, It's deprivation and spreadsheets. That's it. But that's not true. There's any Deprivation number. Deprivation spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> I could totally see how you and Joe are friends. So if you're listening to this and you want to get an understanding of what we mean when we're describing Joe, listen to the Stacking Benjamins podcast. Yes. I have been on that podcast, so you can find my episode, but you will totally understand <laughs> how Emily and Joe have been able to write this awesome book yeah. called Stacked. But I could, sorry to interrupt, but I could totally, oh, like, okay. I see how you guys just mesh. <laughs> So these are things that people have an idea of, like there's one way to do it, but there's many, many, many ways to to budget. And the, the main thing is about knowing where your money has gone. So tracking and planning for the money that's coming in. And that's kind of, you know, planning. So tracking and planning are the two aspects of budgeting. So however that's going to work for you is the right way for it to work as long as it's something that you can do consistently. I consider money management to be a little bit like laundry in that you're never done. You know, I I, I have a joke, you know, every few weeks when I'm doing laundry, I'll be like, surely I must be near the end of the laundry now. I've been doing it for 30 years. (laughs) I must be close to the end by now. (laughs) But money management is like that. It's, It's a consistent, continuous practice. And so find a way to make it work for you. Find a way that that you can enjoy or at least not dread it in the same way that you find a way for laundry to work for you so that, that you can enjoy it or at least not dread it. And, you know, whether that's like listening to podcasts while you're folding or, you know, creating something that's like color coded for your budget. That's that's me. Anything rainbow color, I'm down with. <laughs> and it makes me excited to work on it. That's the next step. From that point you can't budget your way to wealth. There's no way to scrimp and save to wealth. You can't frugal your way to wealth. So it's important to find a way to increase your income 
And so there are a number of things you can do with that. One is ask for a raise. And we talk in the book about the best way to go about asking for a raise, because that can be very, very intimidating for a lot of people. But there is things that you can do to increase the chances of getting to a yes. Another option is to find a similar job that pays better. I mean, that's something that millennials have very much proven that, you know, sometimes the best way to increase your income is to move to a different job. And then there's the the possibility of doing something on the side, you know, the side hustling. And we make it very clear that if you want to do something like DoorDash or Uber, you know, that kind of side hustle, that's like the, the typical version of side hustle, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's going to exhaust you pretty quickly. So like, that's the sort of thing where if you have a very specific goal in mind, like you're trying to pay off debt quickly, that could be something where you're doing a sprint. But if you're going to do a side hustle, a marathon where you can keep the pace is going to be a better option for you. And so Joe goes into quite a bit of detail about how you can create your own side business and make money from that. And so so these are all different ways that you can work on increasing your income because when you have more money, you have more choices and more freedom and more ability to save money. Whereas if you, you know, there's only so much you can do if you're making $45,000 a year. There's only so many ways you can cut that money and like cut back on on expenses because at some point you're going to reach the bone and you can't cut anymore. Yeah, there's, and that's something that I always remind people of. Yes, we talk about cutting back. We want to cut back. We want to be mindful, but you get to a point where you have to eat. Mm -hmm. You have to live in a safe house. You Mm -hmm. have to put clothes on your body. (laughs) You need to have heat in the winter. Mm -hmm. How you, you will get to a point where you can no longer cut back. Mm -hmm. And so you need to shift your focus on let's earn more money. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that I think can be tough because earning more money well, I mean, for one thing, it sounds like work because <laughs> it often is. It is work. <laughs> but when um, the money comes in, it's so good. That work is, is worth it. It is so worth it. Whereas like cutting back, you know, clipping coupons and things like that, that may feel less like work, but it, it's also work. You know, being yep. extremely frugal can end up being like a part-time job. Yep. So would you rather spend that time bringing in more money or would you rather spend that time cutting back your expenses. And for a lot of people, it's a yes. And it's, it's do both, but you know, there are some people who are just for whatever reason, much more comfortable, or they get that little thrill from figuring out how to be super frugal and like more power to you, go, go forth and be frugal. And then there are some people who that sounds like about as appealing as cleaning the local football stadium with their toothbrush. So if that's the case, then focus on finding other ways to increase your income. And that's just perfectly reasonable and an excellent way to help you reach the goals that are most important to you. Hey, everyone. Before we continue with this podcast episode, I'd love for you to check out the best-selling Clever Girl Finance book series. There are three books in the series, and the first book is Clever Girl Finance, Ditch Debt, Save Money, and Build Real Wealth. The second book is Grow Your Money, Learn How Investing Works. And the third book is called The Side Hustle Guide, Build a Successful Side Hustle and Increase Your Income. 
You can also check out my fourth book called Choosing to Prosper, Triumphing Over Adversity, Breaking Out of Comfort Zones, Achieving Your Life and Money Dreams. And this book highlights my personal story to building a business of impact and challenges you as the reader to dig deep into laying out what you truly want to accomplish for yourself. I wrote each of these books to empower women just like you to achieve your goals and get to the point where you're living the life you desire on your own terms. If you love these books, be sure to tell your best girlfriends and they also make the perfect gift. These books are available everywhere books are sold and you can purchase them as ebooks, audiobooks, and also physical books. And you can also ask your local library to order them as well. Thank you so much. And let's get back to the episode. Yeah. So having those goals, budgeting, increasing your income, those are some of the things that you mentioned, which are critical to us being able to stack those $100 bills that we see in our mind's mm-hmm. eye. And thank you for sharing that, by the way. You also share some really, really useful tips and really useful ways to think about it, right? So nothing against anybody who is on that frugal coupon cutting path. I mean, mm-hmm. I do it sometimes too, mm-hmm. but I think it's finding the balance, right? Like sometimes I get excited when I get a coupon, but it's if I find it by chance, right? If I want to buy something mm-hmm. online, I'm like, okay, let me find a quick coupon, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to spend 16 hours looking for a coupon when I can be spending that 16 hours making real money in my business, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So you always want to weigh, weigh, how are you spending your time and it is helping you achieve what you want to achieve. So one of the things you also talk about in the book is a money dashboard. So what is a money dashboard and how can we set one up? So your money dashboard is the place where you can go to kind of get the overview of your money. So, you know, for the Excel-minded folks, as in Microsoft Excel, like that might be, you might create your own spreadsheet. That is something that I have personally done because that's just how my brain works. I shocked Joe when I told him that I'm a lady in the streets and a freak in the spreadsheets. (laughs) So... Oh my God. <laughs> if you are not a freak in the spreadsheets, totally fine. There are other ways to create a money dashboard. You, you know, can... I'm a freak in the spreadsheets. I love my spreadsheets. I never thought about it that way, <laughs> but I'll own it. <laughs> so another really great option is to use some sort of fintech. Now, I often will suggest people start with their own bank because so many banks now have these incredible tools that allow you to see all of your money at once. And they'll have tools, calculators, budgeting apps, and things like that, all just connected within their mobile app. So that's another way that you can do it. You could use a third party. So like Mint or You Need a Budget or you know any of those sorts of programs. There's a Tiller HQ is another one. Clarity Money, which is now Marcus Insights by Goldman Sachs, which you can use even if you are not a Goldman Sachs customer. These are all great ways to kind of just aggregate your financial information so that one of the reasons why money management can seem intimidating is because it feels like, oh my goodness, I got to gather all this information from so many different places. And that's true when you start, but once you've kind of created your dashboard, it's something where you may have to like put in something that's not in there, you know, might might have to add something every once in a while, but the majority of your information is all there. So you can kind of at a glance, see what's going on, how much you've spent, how much income you have coming in and what your bills are going to be, those sorts of things. And that is really, really important because you can't act without knowing. You can't make the best financial decisions for yourself without knowing where you are. So in the same way that having a map is kind of useless if you don't know where you are on the map. 
there's a reason why in the mall they have the you are here <laughs> symbol on there. And so that's what the dashboard does is it, it tells you where you are so that you can make a plan for where you're going. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And I love how you say leverage fintech to make it easier for you. So connect to an app, you know, you're not sure which app, go to your app store. You mentioned a bunch of options, but go to your app store, read the reviews, see what's most popular, download five of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, for some people, what they hate about it is the colors. Find the one that has the colors that work for you. Some people, it's a font. Find the one that has the font that works for you, right? The goal of the fintech app is not to make your life more difficult, it's to make your life easier when it comes to money. And it has to be visually appealing to you and it has to work and it has to just, you know, simplify things. That's the goal. So find the one that works for you, test them all out, and then just do process of elimination, right? Mm -hmm, And then mm -hmm. start to see your big picture of your finances. Mm -hmm. So what other Benjamins do people need to stack, especially right now, considering the economy? It feels like we're in a recession, but the government is telling us we're not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. These Because um, the numbers don't lie. Okay. The numbers don't lie. Yeah. I went grocery shopping this past weekend and- as I was putting stuff in the cart, I was like, this doesn't seem so bad. But then once it all was added up at the register, it's like, oh, this is bad. (laughs) It's sad every time I go to the grocery store now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I hadn't done a full grocery run for a few weeks. My husband had been doing it. I'd only done like, you know, the midweek, like, oh, we need onions type thing. So I hadn't had, it was a little bit of a sticker shock for me. So I think that there there are two things that people need to focus on at a time like this. One is figuring out what choices are going to get you the biggest bang for your buck. And so one of the things that drives me a little bit nuts about financial media is often there'll be these very reductive pieces of advice, things like, you know, well, buy the one ply toilet paper and save the difference. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's not going to help. <laughs> I mean, like that, that's like what, pennies? Or it'll be, on the other hand, like, you know where it's cheap to live? Idaho. Move to Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) And give up your car. (laughs) Like, no, that's not actually helpful. So you need something (laughs) that's like actionable, reasonable, and lucrative. And so finding those things can be a little bit tough, but there are things that you can do. So One of the things that I I, I recommend is going through and finding any charges, current charges that you're not actually using because so many things are subscription models these days. And so it's very easy to sign up for something and forget that you did so. And then you're just paying your, your bills monthly without really looking through all the charges. This happened to me personally. And I am someone who I have an eagle eye and look through. I accidentally signed up for two subscriptions to the New York Times and it was just online. I wasn't getting the paper because I had two different email addresses. And so I had signed up accidentally with both email addresses, but it was staggered in such a way where every time the charge came through, I was like, that feels early for me to get charged for it, but I guess it's right. So it was eight (laughs) months. It was eight months before I realized like, no, I should not be paying this every two weeks. (laughs) And that was $20 a month was the amount. So it was $160 oops. And so, and that, that was from someone who pays very close attention to like, I I see every charge that goes through because that's, Uh that's just how I'm wired. So these are very easy to miss, particularly when they're the small amounts, like $20, $10 here. Yeah. You can miss them. We're like, oh, 
I'm sure it's for that thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so going through and finding those, you know, your results could be relatively modest or they could be pretty impressive just going through and seeing what those are. Another one that I, I recommend is negotiate your recurring bills for things, services like your cell phone, your internet, and that sort of thing. These are a little intimidating because I'm sure you've had the experience of being on old with your cell phone provider and they make it so difficult for you to make changes unless you're going to be spending more money. But if they are also very much trying to keep customers because it costs them so much more money to attract a new customer than it does to retain a loyal customer. So, you know, calling, reminding them of your loyalty, you know, like, Hey, you've been my internet provider for three years. And then saying like, could I get the monthly amount that you're charging to new customers? And so that's one way to save yourself money. I know a woman who was able to save $2,000 a year just by doing that. She called all of her service providers and asked for the new customer amount or asked if there were any discounts available. And, you know, just being open and polite <laughs> because the customer service reps are, are people too, and they're more likely to want to help someone who they like <laughs> than someone who makes it difficult for them. So, those are the sorts of things to be thinking about in terms of dealing with rising inflation, you know, finding places where you can cut without feeling it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I was just going to share that, you know, specific to my internet bill, like, you know, I have requested every new customer option there is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was really bothering me was I I felt like I was not getting the service I was paying for. So I used to work on cable. So I know exactly how speed tests run and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And every time I would call, they say, oh, you know, maybe you have a bad modem, maybe this, oh, we're going to reset. Then it'll work for two days, you know, and then one day I get the bill and I'm like, you know what? I'm paying all this money. There's high inflation. This was actually two weeks ago. I'm going to see how much I can get back because I haven't gotten what I've paid for. Right. So mm-hmm. with every subscription, you want to get what you're paying for. And I'm like, customer service is telling me maybe it's me. It's mm-hmm. it's you, not us. So guess what? I'm going to find out who is head of customer service in this company. Oh, wow. <laughs> and who is the boss's 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 boss? Uh-huh. I'm going to email everybody. <laughs> oh, good <laughs> for I you. <laughs> and I end up getting a $390 credit. That's amazing. On my bill. And that mm-hmm. email literally took me, what, 10 minutes mm-hmm. to vent? Mm-hmm. Vent? Mm-hmm. <laughs> vent and then to vent and send. Mm-hmm. And I got $309 back. That was a good investment. Of my yes. Time. Yes. Very much so. But um, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, that's amazing. I love that. So the other side of this that I think is really important and that we should be thinking this way at all times is investing for the future. And so, Investing right now feels kind of fraught because the market has been down. If you have a portfolio, like looking at it, you're like looking at it through your fingers, like it's a horror movie. <laughs> like what, what is it? I don't want to know. And this time of investing is really tough because we are fearful that it's not going to go back up again. We are fearful we're going to lose our principal. We are like, it's just very, very tough. And the human brain is not wired to deal with this like this. However, if you can find ways to either just have a regular investment that you do, you know, set it and forget it so that you are taking advantage of dollar cost averaging with dollar cost averaging. What that means is when you are investing, let's say a hundred bucks a month, some months, the, what you're investing in is, is up. So your hundred bucks only gets like a portion of a share. 
And then some months it's down. So what you're investing in, you can get two or three shares with a hundred bucks. But over time, what that means is you're buying more at a lower price and less at a higher price so that you get the benefit when things go up again, because you have more shares at a lower price. So when things go up, those shares are worth more and you didn't have to spend as much on them. So just committing to and keeping with your regular investing, which you've been doing through your 401k or for your IRA or whatever investment vehicle you're using, or taking the time to think through the long term. Unless you are on death's door, everyone is investing for the long term or can be. So even people who are close to retirement, people who are in their 50s and 60s, you know, or those who have retired already and then they're in their 70s or older may think like, well, I don't have the time to invest like a young person. But that's not true because there is going to be money that you don't need to touch for at least 10 or 20 years. And so taking that long view and recognizing that when things go down, that does not mean they're going to stay down. If the stock market tanked and stayed tanked, that would be because we had a bigger problem than, than money. Much, that would be much bigger problem. Yeah. That would be mean <laughs> alien your apocalypse. Shelter. Yeah. Yeah. Alien apocalypse, giant food. meteorite. <laughs> Get your silver for the zombies. Yes. Yeah. yeah, And the vampires. We have bigger problems than money. (laughs) Yes. And so for me, that I, I find that helps me when I'm looking at my investment portfolio and it's so much lower than it was a few months ago. Uh, like I just remember the zombies. I remember the zombies. Walking dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and recognize that this is temporary. This is a snapshot of where things are right now and you don't need the money right now. So focus on what you're going to need in the future. Yeah. And going back to what you said about retirement, like even if you are 65, you're 70, right? And you're Mm -hmm. like, I don't have time to retire. If you live in the US, you have a likelihood of living to your 80s or 90s. That's Mm -hmm. 20, 30 plus years. You have time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, retirement is not a day. It's not a month. It's not Mm -hmm. a week. It's a whole other lifetime, right? The average retirement Mm -hmm. is 20 to 25 years Mm -hmm. for someone who retires at age 65 to 70. So it's never too late. Yes. Well, and people have this sense of like, okay, on the day you retire, you take out the, you know, let's say you you put aside a million dollars for retirement. You take out the full million and put it in your house (laughs) and live off of it. Make a bed. That's how it works. (laughs) Make a bed and a blanket and a pillow. Yeah. (laughs) Roll around in my money. (laughs) Yeah. So you always have, there's time and you're not going to need the full million that first year, you know, so there's time for a large portion of it to remain invested and continue to grow and recover. If there is a down year early on or at any point in your retirement, there is time for it to recover as long as you you know plan ahead and have some money in less volatile assets that you plan to use for that first year to few couple, three years after you retire so that you're not dipping into the stuff that is invested for the long term. Thank you so much, Emily. This has been really, really great insights. And then finally, I'll ask you if there is one thing that someone listening to this can take away in terms of like, you know, the first actions they should take, you know, I have a budget, I have some goals in place, but I'm feeling kind of stuck. What advice would you give them? I think the important thing is to recognize what is most vital to you in your life. So, you know, a lot of times people will say like, well, my family is the most important thing to me, but they're not necessarily living that. 
So, you know, if they're constantly working and don't get to see their kids' little league games or things like that. And so figuring out what is most vital to you and deciding, is my life in alignment with that? What would it take to get in alignment with that? Now, that sounds like that has nothing to do with money, but the thing is money is about your life. You know, what we are trying to do with money is to create the life that we want to live. Mm -hmm. So figuring out what is most vital to you and then figuring out how to get your money to support that is what's going to help you make the best decisions for your money and for your life. And so that's something that I think can be really hard for people to wrap their heads around because we tend to start with the money. Like, oh, I need more money so that I can spend time with my family, or I need to do this to get more money or to get the money in order. Whereas it's much better to start with, I want to spend more time with my family. How can I make my mm. life and money work so that can happen? And I do want to say with the caveats, you know, for the folks who are working, you know, two jobs and not making enough, that is a very tall order. So recognizing that, but coming from the point of view of your money is there to support your life. Your life is not there to support your money. I love that. I love that. Your money is there to support your life. Yes. That's such that's a such a great way to close out your amazing tips. A couple more questions before you go. <laughs> I ask everybody who comes to the podcast, what is your clever girl superpower? <laughs> Oddly enough, it's navel gazing. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, so I tend Tell to me more. <laughs> I tend to spend a lot of time kind of ruminating over like things that I've done, what I think about things. I'm someone who like, I, I like to take walks and I find myself like thinking about things that I've done in the past, things I'm planning. And one thing that I really appreciate about this kind of navel gazing that I have done my, my entire life is that it helps me identify when things don't feel right in my life mm -hmm. and helps me identify, you know, what's important to me. So the fact that I spend so much of my time kind of just ruminating over what I've done, what I want, you know, if something is bothering me, if something feels really good, I can kind of identify what it is about those things that are right or wrong for my life. And so that has been really helpful in getting me to align my financial choices with my life. I love that. And now it makes sense. I don't know why I thought of oranges when you said navigation. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was like, what? <laughs> Explain. Good <laughs> superpower though. <laughs> Oh, that's um, funny. <laughs> but I, I do love that. And finally, how can folks keep in touch with you? Tell us about the book again, and then again, how to keep in touch with you. So you can find Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management, anywhere books are sold, particularly uh, Joe and I love independent bookstores. So that's a great way to find it. You can go to bookshop.org and order it online to support your local independent bookstore but you can also go to you know, all the usual suspects as well. As for me, you can find me at emilyguyberkin.com is my website. And then I also have Twitter handle is at emilyguyberkin and Instagram is at emilyguyberkin. And then I just want to do a quick shout out for my, I have a new project, well, kind of a new old project. For the past four years, I've been posting One Good Thing on social media every night. And I now have a website called youronegoodthing.com where I'm asking people to share the good things that are happening in their lives because on every single day, there is at least one good thing that happens. 
Oh, that's awesome. We'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes, including that new website. Thank you so much for being here, Emily, and for sharing your insights and awesomeness with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you've loved the episode, but you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes and head on over to iTunes and leave a review so other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. Thank you so much for being here and I'll talk to you on the next episode.